Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. We're going to talk today about the labor movement in America and new energy it may be experiencing. Fresh off the success organizing workers at Amazon, some labor advocates say it's their time and collective bargaining is going to rise again in workplaces across the country. Then we'll hear about Wayne State University President Emory Wilson's new memoir. It's all next on Detroit Today, but first the news from NPR. WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. And as always, I'm really glad you've decided to join us. For decades in this country, unions have really been on the ropes. Corporations and governmental bodies have worked hand in hand to make unions as weak as possible. Laws have been tilted in favor of corporate leaders and away from people who do the work. For those corporations. And maybe large unions also need to take some of their own responsibility for declining membership and waning power. They've been wrecked by internal corruption scandals and not fighting hard enough for their members in a lot of cases. But whatever the cause, the trends are clear. As unions have declined, inequality has increased. As worker power and incomes have plummeted, corporate executive power and incomes are skyrocketing, and our democracy in general has become less stable. While union membership continues to decline, there have been some pretty high-profile labor wins recently that could mark a reversal of that trend. Starbucks workers have been unionizing, and of course, so too have Amazon workers. So the question is, why is this happening now? What does it mean? And how do workers continue this trend? What do they do strategically to continue organizing, fighting for higher wages, and demanding dignity in the workplace? What do they need to do to keep winning? That's where we begin the conversation today. And here to talk about this is a labor organizer turned labor scholar. Jane McAlevey is a strikes correspondent for The Nation and a senior policy fellow at the University of California's Institute for Research on Labor and Employment. Jane, welcome to Detroit Today. Great to be here, Stephen. So as I said in the open, there are some real high points right now, recent high points, that suggest perhaps uh, labor is having something of a comeback. Amazon workers are unionizing. Starbucks workers are unionizing. So how big of a deal is this moment in the history of labor? You know, um, I think on the one hand, it is a very significant period. Um, I say that with a tad of caution because you know, uh, what do they say? Writing the first draft of history as journalists uh, can be a little bit dicey. But I think this moment is significant for several reasons. First, if you look at the recent Gallup polls and the approval ratings, if we just start with sort of the external context for what workers are doing inside of the workplace, it's it's as high as it's ever been since polling began. Not the highest, but we're at basically 1965 level approval ratings by the general public. I think that is a reflection of a second key point here of several key points, which is people sort of finally realizing through the pandemic process, which is not over, I'd like to say, but through the <laughs> pandemic process, you know, sort of everyday people realizing how badly 
corporations abuse these quote-unquote essential workers who we've now like thrown away again and forgotten about, right? The people who grew the food in the farm fields, the people who worked in the grocery stores, the healthcare workers who delivered care without masks or vaccines. You know, I mean, so I think there's a there's a sort of pandemic awareness both on the part of workers, but also on the part of the general public that's pushing those Gallup numbers up from the raw abuse from, let's say, Elon Musk, who should not, in my opinion, be allowed to own Twitter. You know, him, he was one of the first ones, right? When California, who went into sort of the first lockdown back when people thought this was like a three-week, you know, lockdown in the spring of 2020, uh, you know, just said screw you to the entire California regulatory system and said, I'm not close at my Tesla plant in Fremont, California. So, and it was a big public fight if you were in California. So watching the egregious behavior of corporations, I think, has set the tone. But most importantly, we've got a new generation of workers and a lot of young ones in the case of the Starbucks movement and the Amazon movement. And those young workers have missed the sort of 30-year war that you were describing in the opening, right, that I write a lot about. I sort of argue about a 50-year war that began in the early 1930s to decimate unions as we know it. So they're not they're not falling for it. They're not a product of it. They're young people. They were born in the late 1990s or early 2000s. You know, McCarthyism, the historic argument against unions, it's, it just washes right over them, and thank goodness. So it's a very important moment, I think, right now. Mm-hmm. So you argue that a lot of the inequality that we see in our country is associated with the decline of the power of labor unions. Um, so I, I want to give you a, a chance to to make that argument here to our listeners. Why doesn't this have to do with, say, lower taxes or us leaning more on a free market economy, other kinds of deregulation that uh, that has taken place. Why is it, in your estimation, the decline of labor's power that is fueling the, these these huge gaps that we see? Yeah, what a great question. Um, let me start by saying that the closing chapter of my most recent book is titled, and it was, of course, before this moment and before the 2020 election, certainly, but it was as goes unions, so goes democracy. And that is sort of my life argument. So how does that play out in several ways? One, a lot of economic decision making in this country, I'm not sure I can say most, although I'm, I'm getting close to saying most, but a lot of really important economic decisions are not even made in the public arena. They're made in the corporate boardroom. For example, Twitter's decision to sell to a you know, I'll tame myself on air, but to someone who's the biggest abuser um, of workers and the public mm-hmm. trust that you can imagine, right? That no one is regulating that decision. Like that Twitter just sold all of our data uh, to someone who's going to exploit it like crazy. So that's a privately made decision. Now, I argue that the most important regulation that corporations in this country set out to destroy was workers through their unions fighting for a better share of the corporate profit and being able to actually regulate in the place where we don't need regulations except for our contract, which is in the workplace, right? Where we can contend very directly with out of control CEOs who make decisions that imperil people's lives as Jeff Bezos and Amazon regularly do from how they abused people at the beginning of the pandemic, including when they fired, you know, Chris Smalls, now the leader of the successful drive on Staten Island, to Elon Musk saying, hey, no, we don't care about the pandemic. We're not going to have any controls. We're just going to let that plant keep rolling, right? So these are private decisions made in the corporate boardroom. They are beyond as we, what we think of as small s state regulation. That's one reason that having unions is so important. And one reason that I argued in a collective bargain in the newest book, that in the 1970s, in the beginning of the 1970s, a you know tripling of the professional class known as union busters, in my opinion, they're called, they call themselves the union avoidance firms, they unleashed a war long before Reagan you know, but what people think of contemporarily as like this key moment when Ronald Reagan uh, replaced, you know, 11,000 striking air traffic control workers that comes a decade after the decision by corporations 
to destroy, again, what I'm going to argue is actually the most one of the most powerful regulatory forces there are because it's enforced by workers themselves, assuming they have the right to strike, which then Reagan, you know, took a knockout a decade later. So it's been a series of sequential blows. But I think we know from every chart and every economic indicator that in this country, when the power balance was different, when unions and workers had more union representation, you know, a full third in the private sector in the heyday. And I'm talking to Detroit now, so you folks probably know your history better than the average city in this country, um, given the history of the United Auto Workers. But, you know, I think that it's it's very clear. I don't even think people dispute it really anymore, that when workers had far greater levels of representation by trade unions, that had the right and power to strike and the ability to strike. And that may come to one of your questions later about unions themselves. But and when they regularly exercise the strike weapon to enforce very strong contracts, we absolutely saw a huge decrease in inequality because it's not an inequality of income. It's an inequality of power and the power imbalance is what has become so skewed. I'm talking with uh, Jane McAlevey. She's a strikes correspondent for The Nation and a senior policy fellow at the University of California's Institute for Research on Labor and Employment. We're talking about this moment in labor history, this moment in American history where it seems that uh, after decades of declining power, we might be at the dawn of another growth of labor and its power, another uh, expansion of organizing in American workplaces. Uh, We want to hear from you during the conversation as well. Uh, Are you someone who would like to organize a union in the place where you work? Are Are you pressing your workplace or pushing to collectively build a movement around uh, a political issue. Do you think this moment is ripe for that kind of movement building? Tell us why, and tell us what you make of news like uh, Amazon workers organizing or Starbucks workers organizing. Is that a sign to you that labor is uh, is moving up in the world again uh, and getting a little off the ropes that it's been on for uh, a couple of decades at least. <clears throat> As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there. Or you can go to Twitter and uh, hashtag Detroit Today, um, and we will uh, we'll try to include you in the in the conversation that way. Uh, Jared on Twitter says, uh, I really doubt that uh, in answer to the question about whether uh, unions are um, are uh, on the rebound. Uh, unions are down like 30% in Michigan the past decade with no sign that that is turning around. That is uh, a, a guy named Jared Scoop, Scoop, Scorup, actually, of the Mackinac Center, uh, a, a center-right or libertarian uh, think tank uh, up north here in uh, in in Michigan, um, I, I want to have you respond to that, Jane. Um, if you look at numbers uh, in states like Michigan, home of the labor movement, uh, of the original growth of labor and its power, um, the numbers don't look good. Um, what tells you? What tells you? I guess that things are are changing, other than these sort of uh, high point news items like Amazon or Starbucks. Uh, yeah, I think a few things. And one, I'm glad you clarified that Jared was from Mackinac, not just Jared, some random person, because <laughs> Mackinac is, in my view, part of the problem. Um, they are part of a legal infrastructure underwritten by the Koch brothers and a whole series of you know, incredibly uh, well-financed institutions that have set out to help destroy, as I argued, from an economic labor market perspective to destroy the most powerful form of regulation we've known in this country, which is in terms of the economic arena, which is workers winning a contract and forcing corporate shareholders to actually share more of the pie. So, um, yeah, I think it's social context. If you go back to, I quote this in, again, in the, in the most recent book, but who cares about that? Like I, there's some really great history where the main economic um 
sort of academic association, they've changed names since the 1930s, but back in the 1930s, in 1931, there's a famous quote by a leading conservative, we'd say, similar to their institution, mm -hmm. but a well-respected economist saying, essentially predicting the death of unions. So that's 1931. And I highlight it as a poll quote in my current book because it's that's what we have to look back at, right? So 1931, the corporate elite, you know, it's, the, it's still the roaring, kind of the coming out of the end of the roaring 20s. Uh, okay, the economy's crashed, but they're, the unions are down to 6%, basically the same number as now in the private sector. And there's this prediction that unions are done, uh, that we, quote unquote, have successfully sort of wiped them out, meaning the corporate class of the, you know, last Gilded Age. Um, and then what happens several years later? <laughs> Anything but the end of trade unions. So what I think... It, as someone who both uh, continues to run campaigns, negotiate contracts, but also, you know, pause to write about them um, and take more time to read history. That's what my late in life PhD allowed me to do was read more history and find gems like that. And also, by the way, look at, I also make analogies to today's Amazon factories essentially being no different than the Detroit auto factories or the Michigan auto factories of that same period, meaning, um, the conditions of uh, health, and sa health and safety violations were unbelievable in the car plants and the auto factories um, in Michigan. So I do a whole parallel between, and again, that's long before the Staten Island Victor, at least a couple of years before it, when I was writing the book in 2019, where I, where I look back and I read the reports of what the conditions were, health and safety violations-wise, layoffs, unpredictable schedules, everything that goes on in an Amazon warehouse today is what the conditions were in 1931 and 1932. Plenty of academic research to back it up in your home state. So, uh, and obviously that economist prediction was pretty flat wrong. Why? Because the social context matters. And that's what I started off with in terms of speaking about young people who are not gonna fall for the kind of lies, you know, that different generations had pounded into their heads. They have social media that communicate differently. Um, they're risk takers. They, they're living today in the context of, oh, the headline news story that I was listening to on your radio station, NPR, that the Southwest is drier than it's been in 1,200 years, right? Mm -hmm. We've got a young generation. I was in preparing for fire season right out West. We've got a young generation coming up under climate change uh, with a bad economy all around them. Um, with crappy jobs where even if someone guarantees you like they did at the Staten Island Warehouse facility, 18 bucks an hour after a couple of years of being there, that means nothing in New York City. Sorry, $18 an hour is a poverty wage in the city. So the destruction of benefits, the destruction of pensions, the destruction of real pensions, the you know, we can go on and on about how successful corporations have been in the absence of a strong labor movement. Mm -hmm. So the social mm -hmm. context really matters. And the approval ratings, the young people's attitude about the kind of, like, we're not going to fall for the, you know, sort of rap that unions have been given, the decision by the Amazon workers, by the way, to form an independent union, which sort of reflects a little suspicion of some of the national unions and a real decision to go for it and form a union despite that, because they understand that if people succumb to the great resignation, keep quitting their job and just move on and don't stay and fix the problem, which means go through a unionization process, we're not going to fix the problem. It's going to be one bad job after another with you know eroded or no benefits. So wage is one thing, a quality of life, the capacity to retire, the capacity to have good health care, you know, all of that um, is what's been really, really, really degraded in the last 50 years. So I think the social context is there. George Floyd played into it. Mm -hmm. uh, the Black Lives Matter movement is playing into it. The climate change movement is playing into it, or the climate crisis, I should say. is You know, I just think there is a lot going on that if you look at the early 1930s, is actually becoming similar, not the same yet, but similar in terms of the fervent and dissatisfaction of everyday people. Yeah, yeah. Okay, when we come back, we're going to continue this conversation about this moment in labor history, this moment in American history. We're going to come back to your calls and your social media comments. Frank in Livonia, Allison in Detroit, Gary in Dearborn Heights, Sam in Mount Clemens. We'll hear from you if you want to join them. 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. You can also go to Facebook or Twitter and continue to put comments there. And we'll try to work you into the program that way. We'll be right back 
with more Detroit Today. WDET is your place for open dialogue. The music you love. Real news and in-depth analysis. And cultural experiences. The sound of Detroit. 1019 WDET is your public radio station. This is Detroit Today. I'm Stephen Henderson, and I'm talking with Jane McAlevey, correspondent for The Nation, a senior policy fellow at the University of California's Institute for Research on Labor and Employment. We're talking about the labor movement uh, here in America and whether it is getting up off uh, the ropes or off the mat and starting to fight a little harder for workers, starting to have a little more success organizing uh, American workers. We've seen Amazon and Starbucks uh, both be kind of stunned by efforts to uh, unionize workers in in those places, uh, places that didn't seem ripe for uh, the kind of organizing that we used to see a lot in this country. Uh, The question is, what does this mean? And does this point us toward a brighter future, not just for labor unions themselves, but for the workers they represent. We want to hear from you during the conversation about what you think about unionizing efforts. Are you part of uh, a workforce that is thinking about forming a union to get better wages and uh, uh, better conditions, the kinds of things that uh, unions used to guarantee for so many uh, Americans? Uh, uh, Give us a sense of where you think we are with all of that. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to social media and put comments there, and we'll work you into the conversation that way. I'm going to start today with uh, Frank in Livonia. Frank, what's on your mind? Hey, good morning. Uh, I'd like to respond to what the author said about uh, economic decisions being made in the boardroom, which is, uh, you know, a fundamental flaw in uh, in the thinking. I think in the union movement, uh, we are not um, responding to uh, direction from boardrooms. They are responding to co- uh, consumer demand, and uh, you know, as long as there's profit margin and as long as there's consumers. And you can see this in, you know, in the automotive industry, especially around here. Uh, back in the day, uh, you know, back in the 70s, you know, people were going to work in the auto plants, making big bucks, you know, 17, 18, 19 years old. We had snowmobiles and cottages, but there was a huge profit margin in, uh, in that. Uh, and so, uh, you know, consumers were buying these cars and loving them and, uh, until the Japanese came along and the gas crisis, then they could not respond to consumer demand. And then we saw then the, the labor movement here, the labor organizations deteriorate because there was no money to be made. And so I, I would really you know, encourage anybody when you're thinking about unionization, I'm retired now, and so I don't really, um, uh, not involved in it directly. Uh, but if there's no profit margin, and you look at these, some of these companies like Starbucks and stuff, I mean, the money that they're making, you're damn right they should be unionized. Those workers need a big chunk of that, you know. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of times when you're, uh, you know, uh, uh, you think about uh, these, you know, uh, free-range products like uh, eggs and how people yeah. will spend a lot of money on eggs. But, the, you know, but then you got these other eggs that are, you know, a third, a quarter of the price right next to it. Well, that's what the workers are doing. That's what we're feeling like sometimes. We're just chickens yeah. in a cage. And as long as you keep passing those eggs out, <laughs> you got a job. So, uh, Frank, I really, uh, Frank, I really love uh, I, I really love that you called and and shared that perspective. And, and as somebody who, again, is been uh, in unions and, uh, you know, in the workplace. Uh, Jane, I wonder what your reaction is uh, to what Frank's saying here. Um, I love Frank's analogies, so we should we should we should be getting Frank to write <laughs> analogies for That's us. Right. Chickens, in a, chickens in a cage is great, but also <laughs> more seriously in terms of his point, I and mean, I'd say a couple of things. It's it's a nice segue for me to branch over into, on the one hand, I really do believe key decisions 
are made at the not the ship show shop floor, but the corporate level, right? And that that argument I think is holds through all of time. That labor market decision making, that sort of outside the again small s state or you know state or federal regulators, um, has been key to the to the destruction of the economy and therefore our democracy. Um, and we might come back to. Uh, some of the democracy analogies later, which I wrote about in the New York Times a couple of years ago, but, you know, gerrymandering, but that's normal for us, voter suppression, right in union campaigns. Let's come back to that. I want to stick with Frank's point. And I would say the segue that Frank opened up for me is to say now then, and there is also state regulation, meaning the regulatory arms of government that have done a real disservice to the working class. And when we talk to a Detroit audience or a Michigan audience, we can start by saying this has been a significant bipartisan problem. The globalization, as it's euphemistically called, or mm-hmm. the intentional destruction of really good quality jobs in this country, which I prefer to call it, uh, to put a little agency into the decision making about what regulators began to do, that's where the regulation comes in. And that's where I think we see a challenge in a state like Michigan in terms of the confusion among voters for the last several election cycles, right? Starting certainly in 2016, if not before that, where you look at the margin of vote for a party that is more actively trying to destroy workers' lives, a little confusion with the party that says it's not doing that and says it's for the workers, but it was Bill Clinton who walked in the door after the 1992 election and did what the Republicans were incapable of doing, which was pass the North American Free Trade Agreement. Now, that was not the beginning of the process of moving good jobs. First, out of places like Michigan, I worked in the South, by the way, as a young organizer, and that was a very to this day, very helpful for me that I actually moved to the South to work in the South to understand the level of repression that goes on, not just in union election, but for black voters and Latinos and fill in the blank. But, you know, when I worked in the South, we were working with a group, just one example, called the Tennessee Industrial Renewal Network. I worked at a place called the Highlander Center at the time, which was the education center for the CIO in the 30s, right? Just to get background on my thinking about this. And you know, the Tennessee Industrial Renewal Project turn, this is late 80s, early 90s, was fighting plant closures. Now, those plant closures had been fought by people in Michigan a couple decades earlier because the South of the United States was the first place, right, where there were no unions and no environmental regulation. So the first place terrific unionized jobs went that a lot of workers lost their lives for and fought, you know, battalions of police for in places like Michigan and Pennsylvania and beyond, those factories first went to the south within the north, as I like to call it, which is the U.S. South. Then when asking for a pension, you know, or or something from these corporations that were making hand over fist money and still are, I want to correct that too, they still are. um, Then they were like, oh, hey, we can get down to like two bucks a day if we go into the you know, Maquiladora zone in Mexico, that was pre-NAFTA, right? That was the setup. So I just think that there has been a facilitation that's been bipartisan that made it so the auto plants, for example, that were left in the U.S., uh, just like I'm working with a lot of German workers right now, by the way, with German auto workers who are watching, right, Who for whom the U.S. South has become their Mexico, which we don't even grok how serious that is if you're a German auto worker and you're moving to Mississippi, you know, your plan is moving, BMW or Mercedes is moving to the U.S. Deep South. Uh, it's amazing. So it's, it's intentionally trying to make them not appear competitive. Um, so I think that's the... That's where the combination of corporations and organizations like Mackinac and others, Koch brothers, really in the early 70s, um, set out and the U.S. Business Roundtable is formed. And, you know, I give a whole series of history lessons in the new book Mm -hmm. about where these actors came from. And that's where I look at Michigan in the 1930s in particular uh, and try to draw the analogies. And that comes back to why this moment matters so much. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Again, Frank, really love uh, that you called and. Shared your perspective and your experience with all of this. Uh, Let's go next to Sam in Mount Clemens. Sam, what's on your mind? Hey, hey, Stephen, how are you? Good, how are you? Um, Good. I have both a positive and negative experience with unions. So I am a carpenter um, in my 40s now. I was working non-union when I started. I got to a point where I should have been making more money and 
they weren't giving raises. So I went to a union company, got employed, and it was great. I got the wage I deserved or earned. And fast forward 15 years of the union company, um, I should have been making more money. I was maxed out. And ultimately, I ended up starting my own company, which is what I do now to make the money that I need to make. Um, and the one thing I, I noticed during the union years is I think done right, it can be great, but our union in particular, they kind of, they never really had our backs on certain issues or they said they did and they didn't come through. Um, and uh, they kind of, the reps were kind of like thugs. They come around to the job site, you're late on your union dues. Um, like I said, I'm just playing devil's advocate with that. But um, I think done right and regulated, it can be good. But I also have the negativity too. Yes, yeah, Sam, I, I I really appreciate those points and and your calling. You know, Jane, his his questions and his sort of thinking about this really send me to the space of trying to, I guess, get you to talk about strategies that organizers need to use or can be using at this point to convince people um, that this makes sense for them, that this makes sense for them and their workplaces. I mean, Sam's skepticism is not just, uh, you know, it's just, it's not speculation on his part. It's from his experiences. And I think there are a lot of people who have memories of, of, unionized workplaces um, or impressions of them that that are that are negative um, and so what is it that that organizers need to be saying or what are some of the strategies they need to be employing to get people to to think about this differently than than the way Sam just described it yeah uh, and again I am glad Sam called in and I uh, think the question and his ex- his lived experience is, real. Mm-hmm. Um, and in all three of my books, I am uh, quite uh, convinced that the only way to save U.S. democracy, small d as we know it, is actually to rebuild strong unions as fast as we can. I'm also, you know, among national labor leaders known to be a bit of a critic, uh, which I call tough love, frankly, because um, some of them deserve it, including starting with the United Auto Workers leadership uh, sure. in your state. So, yeah. Um, I think the most important thing, I think what's, and I come from a long line of carpenters, so I I appreciate on my father's (laughs) side, I appreciate Sam's experience all the way around. And I, you know, here's my quick thoughts. One is the most important, as a union organizer for, you know, two and a half decades, the single most important thing that I could do, uh, one, is actually show workers, not just the contract that other workers doing the same kind of work that they had, you know, that, that we had already achieved, that other workers already achieved. That was one piece of evidence. But we would have very serious discussions about small, small union, small day union democracy mm-hmm. and what it means to, as workers have control of your organization. And so where I want to honor Sam's uh, experience is to say, there are people who have had bad experiences in a union, and that's a legitimate critique. And I think for a lot of workers, they it's not obvious. Like it's not obvious to someone how they fix the, you know, Rick's the fact that Rick Snyder is about to, again, from your, your news story, that he's about to appeal a case and get away mm-hmm. with not being called to testify, like what mm-hmm. the rich and powerful get to do. It's not obvious to ordinary people how do you you know, attack American democracy when it's not serving you. Like, it's very complicated to figure out how do you keep, how do you make and keep your union small d democratic? So I say to workers, if you're forming a union, one of the most important things that you need to do is talk to not the reps that Sam was referencing, again, around the collector's dues, right? Not the staff. You need to talk to other workers who are members of the same union that you're contemplating joining. Because it's only by talking to rank and file members and asking them, what is your experience with your union? How are the reps in the union? Are you involved in key decision making? Which for me as a union negotiator, and I've just written a 
huge report about this that's free at the UC Berkeley website about how do you conduct bottom-up democratic transparent negotiations, which would have helped the John Deere workers and several others last I looked. But you know, I believe very strongly that workers need to make the, the key decisions in their union. And that isn't just about electing the top guy, like the reform movement in the UAW, good start. But for me, it starts with rank and file decision-making about the union contract. And I come from a union tradition, from a pretty radical union still today, called 1199 New England, who where I, where I was trained. And our constitution says every worker has the right to be in the collective bargaining process. There's almost no union constitution in this country that says that. So I, I come from a tradition where centering workers in decision-making um, is crucial. So when it comes to strategies to sort of, like the way you framed it, strategies to convince people as an organizer, for me, it's a series of, our job is like coaches. I'm gonna ask a series of questions to a worker. I'm gonna hear what concerns they have on the shop floor. I'm gonna keep asking questions about how else do you think you're gonna solve that? But at some point, I've got to be able to show, I believe, or make the case as I have been for 25 years, that the kind of organization that you want to build as a worker is one where you control the decision making. And that's really fundamental to get at Sam's point. Okay, uh, Jane McAlevey, it was really great uh, to have you here with us on Detroit Today to talk about labor and uh, its present and future. Thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. Okay, when we come back, we are going to talk with Wayne State University President M. Roy Wilson about his new memoir. Stay with us for more Detroit Today. Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. As always, thanks for tuning in. Wayne State University President M. Roy Wilson has had a lot to say over the past two years about leadership during the pandemic. He's an epidemiologist by trade who has specialized in racial disparities in American health care. It's a perspective that we've turned to here on Detroit Today a number of times during the COVID-19 crisis to talk about these unbelievable differences in the way the pandemic played out in the lives of white Americans and African-Americans and other people of color. But now Wilson is turning inward with a new memoir that is both reflective and at times deeply revealing. The book, titled The Plum Tree Blossoms Even in Winter, looks back on Wilson's troubled childhood starting in Japan and journeys through his accomplishments, his setbacks, and terrifying medical troubles as an adult. It's going to be released on May 4th, and Wilson will host a book signing and meet and greet that day at the Wayne State University Barnes & Noble at 82 West Warren from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. Wayne State University President Emory Wilson joins us now to talk about this wonderful new book. Uh, Welcome back to Detroit Today. It's always good to be back. Stephen, thank you very much for the invitation. Yeah, great to have you here. So I want to talk about the title of your book because I'm I'm always intrigued by how people come up with the titles for uh, their books. Uh, The Plum Tree Blossoms Even in in Winter. Tell us the story about finding that phrase and why it's so meaningful to you now. Yeah, it's an interesting story. So there's two reasons why I picked that title. One is it's it's deeply symbolic. Um, The book is about challenges and not giving up. And even in the darkest of times that you can persevere. And um, the plum tree is is uh, signifies that it's a metaphor for that. most blossoming trees bloom in the spring, in, mm-hmm. in May, like the cherry blossom. The plum tree is very unusual in that it blooms in February, the darkest, dreariest, coldest time of the year. And yet something beautiful comes out of it. And it's, it's just uh, symbolic of um, hope, 
perseverance, uh, resilience, all the things that I wanted to uh, emphasize in my book. But there's another reason. And, and the other reason is my earliest memory as a child. I, was, I went to a cherry blossom uh, festival with uh, my mother. Um, and after the uh, festival, she went to a, a Shinto shrine to pray. And uh, there was a little souvenir store there. And I asked her to buy me a little inscription of what I thought was a cherry blossom. And I wanted to remember the day, so I asked her to buy it for me. When I got home, I asked her to read the uh, inscription because it was a, it was a, it looked like a cherry blossom and um, uh, with uh, lettering on it. And so she read the inscription and it was the plum tree blossoms even in winter. Hmm. And I was deeply disappointed because I thought it was a, a picture, an inscription of a, of a cherry blossom. And uh, to find out that it was a, a plum blossom, I, of course, I didn't know the significance <laughs> of the plum blossom at that time. Uh, but I kept that, uh, that inscription for my entire life, and it gave me strength uh, during times when uh, things were dark and dreary. And um, when my mother died, um, I put it in her coffin. And so uh, wow. it was the earliest uh, memory that I have of my childhood. And it's the last thing that I did uh, for my mother. Yeah. So, so uh, you write in the book about your childhood uh, being a time of loneliness uh, and, and deprivation and, and something that you had to, to overcome. Can you talk just a little about what caused those feelings? Sure. You know, let me first of all say that um, this wasn't an easy book to write. Um, I, I'm deeply personal and I'm not that uh, mm -hmm. person. And, and I portray uh, my family, including myself, in ways that are not um, necessarily favorable. Uh, but it's brutally honest. And I try to be balanced, particularly when it came to uh, my parents, but you know they had their their foibles and uh, they had their good points too. And I try to I try to balance it out. But one of the the realities uh, is that my sister, who's um, four to five years younger than me, and I uh, were alone most of the time when we were children. Uh, my mother was a uh, addicted gambler. And in, in Japan, she would go to these uh, gambling houses and uh, basically just be gone for, for weeks and months at a time. Wow. And my uh, father was uh, in the military, and I'm not sure why he was uh, stationed away so much, but, but he was never home. And so, um, you know, my sister and I basically took care of ourselves and um, for extended periods of time uh, during our childhood. And so it, it, it was a time when we really had to rely on each other. You know, when she was uh, just five years old, uh, she was, uh, you know, making rice um, from at home and uh, uh, having rice ready for me when I came, came home from school. She wasn't even in school yet. Wow, wow. Um, and so you overcome that that early uh, set of challenges, uh, and you achieve some really impressive things. I mean, you get an MD from Harvard Medical School, you become a physician, but then you get sick twice, uh, and so it's almost as if uh, you're you're pushed back, I guess, to this space of real challenge in your life. Uh, uh, talk about how you had to respond to that challenge. Yes. So, you know, one of the chapters I do talk about um, the patient perspective, I think is the name of that chapter. And I talk about my own uh, challenges that I've had. And it, it was actually uh, three major things. Um, um, I'll talk about one of them. Um, you have to read the book for the other, <laughs> but, but the one I'll talk about is, is, uh, important because it really shaped my career. 
Um, as, as you know, and as you mentioned at the beginning, you know, I'm, I'm an ophthalmologist, um, I'm a glaucoma specialist, and uh, I probably have had, you know, if, if, you, if you talk, if you ask someone to name the five people who's had the most influence in the, in the world on uh, uh, glaucoma in, in Black people, you know, I'd be in that you know, top five, maybe uh -huh. even top one or two. Um, um, so I'm very w well known in the area of uh, glaucoma in blacks and, and doing investigations into it and so forth. Well, the part of the reason is that uh, when I was a first year resident at the Mass Eye Infirmary in Boston, um, learning about glaucoma, and learning that it's a it's a disease of old people, you know, usually 65 and older. I had an incident, which I'll tell you about in a second, but the as a result of that incident, I was diagnosed with glaucoma. Mm. Um, and you know, I was devastated. I, you know, here I am, I'm not I'm 28 years old, about uh, I never even heard of glaucoma at that age. Um and that's really what got me started in investigating glaucoma in blacks and did uh, a major study, the uh, St. Lucia um, uh, survey, which showed definitively that it was the first population-based study that showed that uh, blacks have a higher prevalence of glaucoma, that it happens earlier and that it's more severe. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, here I am, um, you know, a, a young black man, and uh, the research I'm doing is is showing me that that my um, I'm likely to go blind. <clears throat> um, um, it, it it did influence me in the sense that um, as I started seeing glaucoma patients, uh, most of them do not do well. I mean, they do ultimately lose a lot of vision, and many go blind. Um, and certainly, my own research showed that that that's the likely uh, course, uh, particularly if you're not well treated. Um, so I decided at that time to get some train, extra training in epidemiology and to um, uh, accept an administrative job, uh, thinking that uh, my career as an ophthalmic surgeon was going to be limited mm -hmm. by my glaucoma. Mm -hmm. Now, the good news is that um, I, I've had a remarkable, remarkable um, stable course. Um, it's, it really has not progressed uh, uh, or very little over decades. Um, and I took care of myself for most of that time yeah. uh, because of, um, uh, you know, my self-image and, and growing up and being invulnerable and so forth. I didn't want to show any weaknesses. And up until 2003, uh, I kept my diagnosis a secret and, um, um, you know, had access to medications, obviously, as a physician, had access to doing my own visual fields uh, as a person who had a lot of residents and fellows trained under me. I, 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 I uh, made excuses for um, them taking my intraocular pressure, you know, uh, so I, I, I found ways to uh, know what my course was and took care of my stuff until 2003 when I decided that um, I really need to be under the care of a, of a you know, glaucoma specialist. And I, um, I, I did that, but it's been remarkably stable. And, um, uh, but I never would have predicted that uh, based on the work that I was doing as well as what the you know common knowledge was about about glaucoma. The, the um, well, I'll, I'll let you ask me some, some other questions. I yeah, yeah. No, we've only got a couple minutes uh, left, uh, but but I, I do want to have you talk about how these personal experiences have shaped um, you know this focus uh, for you around racial disparities. That exists in our in our healthcare system. You and I have talked about that a number of times. Right. Uh, the the book really, I think, shows how your life pushes you uh, in that direction. Yeah. 
So, um, so the book is, is I like to think it's interesting in the sense that, you know, it does talk about my, my early life and some of the challenges, but it also talks about things which um, I, I built my career around, as you mentioned, health disparities, uh, our global health, there's, some, there's a chapter on that, mm-hmm. and experiences are related to that. The, the, the way I got interested in, in um, health disparities is that I decided to do my internship at Harlem, at Harlem Hospital Center, because um, as an ophthalmologist, you have to do a year of uh, general internal medicine. And I wanted to get away from Boston for a year to be in a, a different environment since I knew I was going to be doing my ophthalmology training in Boston. So I did it at Harlem and, um, and, and saw a different totally different uh, patient um, uh, graphics there, obviously. And there was this one patient who really affected me. His name was Luke, I think it was. And uh, he had um, a liver problem and would come in to the emergency room all the time to get uh, drained because he had ascites fluid in the, in the stomach as a result of his liver problems. And you know he he was just using the emergency room as a as you you know as most people care, yeah. primary care uh, a doctor, and then uh, one day he didn't come in and um, and I found out that he had died, and he was he was young guy you know in in his twenties, um, and it just made me uh, think about um, you know whether if if he had had insurance, if he had been more affluent, if he had lived somewhere else, um, maybe in New Rochelle or something rather than in Harlem, um, you know, he, he probably would not have died. Yeah. He, he probably would have had access to medications. He would have had uh, uh, a different diet. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And um, so that, that really spurred my interest in helping care. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, M. Roy Wilson. President here at Wayne State University, always great to talk with you. Congratulations on uh, this really wonderful memoir, and we look forward to it uh, being released on May 4th. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. That's going to do it for us today. I'll be back tomorrow, and I hope you will too. This is 1019 WDET-FM, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation.